0: Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, now as we open your word, God, we pray for understanding. We pray for perspective. We pray for uh, enlightenment, God. We pray for direction. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for how you have revealed to us, communicated to us so many things that uh, uh, would be mysteries to us otherwise. And, Lord, as we look at uh, one of those issues today, Lord, we pray that um, our hearts and minds would, would be drawn first and foremost to you uh to a relationship with you to a commitment to you to a walk with you God help that be uh, the end result of our discovery our discussion this morning of your word we thank you we praise you we love you in Christ's name I pray amen so we're looking at the issue of of heaven the life to come and we we've, we've already tackled many of uh the questions uh concerning you know what are our resources, and last week we looked at the issue of children in heaven and and how those kind of fit together. And now, as we we move toward the end of our discussion, we, we have have a couple more messages here um, on the subject. As we finish out August, uh, we want to look more at some of the the nuts and bolts of exactly what the Bible says about heaven, what it says about uh, these circumstances and these situations, and and so today, what I want to look at is what happens. At death, what does the Bible tell us happens at death? Because this is an issue I think that that shapes our theology in a lot of ways. It shapes our understanding of God. It shapes the way we live our lives. It shapes our expectations. What it is our goal is. What it is we're sharing with others about our relationship with Christ and what that means and what that looks like. Um, it, it's also, I think, a subject that um has has largely been uh, misunderstood. Uh, I believe this, um, there are several, but I believe this is one of the bigger subjects, one of the bigger topics that has been shaped more by popular belief, popular thought uh, through the centuries that Christianity has existed than it really has by what Scripture itself teaches. And and it it shapes kind of our our theology of, of what we do with the person. At death, um, as a pastor, I've I've had people come to me many times over the years and say, "What about cremation? Is cremation okay? Can can Christians be cremated? Is 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 that all right? You know, and and there's different arguments, pro and con. And this message really isn't on cremation, but it it grows directly out of our doctrine of what happens at death and those sorts of things. Um. And, and this is something that goes well back in Christian history. In 177 A.D., um, Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome. And Marcus Aurelius, by most accounts, was a very learned man. He was he's called, he's identified as one of the philosopher emperors. Um, very bright, very intelligent, very thoughtful on many levels. Um, but he hated Christians, And it's interesting because he was very accepting and very interested in discussing all sorts of philosophies, belief systems, all those. He was very open to those in the rest of his empire and the rest of those that he interacted with. But when it came to Christians, he just, and we don't really know why, he never tells us in his writings or anything, but he just hated Christians. And so because of that, a lot of the governors underneath him felt a great deal of freedom in, in how they treated Christians. In, in what they would do in terms of persecution and so forth. Um, and and they would do all sorts of things that were, this is, this is that era when you hear of, you know, Christians being thrown to the lions and, and other things like that. This was that era. This was that time. And it really wasn't his policy. It was the governor's underneath him, but they felt free to do it because of what he believed concerning Christians. And one of the more famous martyrdoms, or series of martyrdoms, took place in 177 A.D. In a, in, a, in a place called Lyons. And in Lyons there was multiple individuals that were fed to the beast and then burned. Okay, Some of our more famous interactions come from this experience. And, and they, they, they varied in terms of who they were. One of the individuals was a 15-year-old boy named Ponticus who professed Christ and was thrown to the lions. One was a woman named Blandina, who was uh, a leader in the church, um, a deaconess, and she uh, proclaimed Christ. And this young woman was thrown to the lions. And then one was a man named uh, Pothinus, who was a ninety-year-old leader of the church, bishop, pastor. And so, from fifteen to ninety years old, didn't matter the gender or anything, they were all thrown to these lions. And and this is what Irenaeus. A, a a, uh, a bishop from that time tells us about this event. He says, "The bodies of these martyrs, after having been maltreated in every way and exposed in the open air for six days, were burned, and their ashes were swept by the wicked into the river Rhone, which flows past so that no trace of them might be visible on earth. They did all this as they had been able to over, as though they had been able to overcome God." They thought they could deprive them of their second birth in order, as they said, they might they may not have have a hope in the resurrection. Through the Christians' trust in the resurrection, they bring to us this foreign and new religion. They despise dangers and are ready to go to even go to death with joy. Now let us see if they will rise again. If their God can help them and rescue them out of their hands. In other words, Irenaeus, there at the end, he's he's telling us what the Romans thought that these Christians. You know, they even went to death with joy because they believed in resurrection. They believed in this, this belief that, that they would be raised from the grave. And so the Romans, logically, let's destroy their bodies completely. Okay? Let's maltreat them, then we'll burn them, then we'll throw them into the ocean so that their ashes are spread all over the earth. And once we've done that, then what? We've we've conquered their belief in resurrection. Let's see God do this now. And and What you have there is is the heart of what distinguished Christianity from so much of the Roman culture. And that was a belief in the resurrection. The the Romans, the Greeks, thought the idea of a resurrection, that this body would be brought back to life someday in the future was nonsense. They thought it was foolishness. And you see these encounters throughout the New Testament. Paul preaching at the Areopagus, we mentioned this last week in Athens, where he's talking about the the, the altar to the unknown God. And he, he preached it to them. And they listen to him very faithfully. They're intrigued by what he has to say. They think it's a, an interesting philosophy he's proposing. And then he says, unto the resurrection of the dead, and everybody goes nuts. All those philosophers, all those Greek philosophers thought, Man, this guy is insane. Why would you preach or teach or believe in this doctrine of the resurrection? The body something to be escaped from, they would say. And what what I've seen is that that's actually become a part, our, our opposition, our opposing viewpoint from the Romans and the Greeks has actually become a part of a lot of Christian theology when it comes to death. We talk about death as if it's escaping this body. We talk about death as if it's just changing locations. Our soul is just changing locations. We don't talk about it the way the Bible talks about it so this morning, I want to look at what the Bible has to say about what happens at death and what's going on there, because it is a struggle in some ways, but it's an important struggle for us to deal with. And so to do that, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the end of the chapter, verses uh, 35 through 58, and we're also going to be looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. They're just a couple pages apart from each other, so you should be able to to move back and forth as needed in our message this morning. But what you have here is Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth, being a Greek church, being a a church that's uh, surrounded by these philosophies and and invested in these philosophies, was really struggling with the doctrine of resurrection. They were saying, there's no such thing. They They were saying about Paul and his teachings that this is foolishness. So in both the letters we have, to the church at Corinth, Paul addresses this issue of resurrection to, to point out, to emphasize how important this doctrine really is and how significant it is. And, and in chapter 15, he started by talking about the resurrection of Jesus and how that's the centerpiece of our faith. And, and he's moving on in the chapter to then tell us why it's the centerpiece of the faith. What difference does it make that Jesus rose from the grave? How does that affect us as individuals? And he says it affects us because he is the first fruit. What happened to him is going to happen to us. And this is where we pick up in verse 35, as Paul is arguing here with, or presenting the arguments of those who oppose him. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? In other words, they're saying, okay, I've seen bodies burned. I've seen these people drowned. I've seen these people destroyed. I've seen bodies mistreated. So you say there's going to be a resurrection. Well, what kind of body is that going to have? Okay, What's that going to look like? How old are we going to be? All those questions that you know we talk about. How old are we going to be in heaven? Uh, you know, in the resurrection, those sorts of things. They're, in other words, they're, they're doing what people have always done when it comes to a view that you oppose. They're bringing up all these straw men, all these false issues to try and undercut the main issue, okay? And they figure if we could just throw enough mud at this idea, enough of these questions, then we can undercut the idea of resurrection. And Paul quickly addresses their their, their silliness here. He says in verse 36, You fool. Okay, in other words, these questions you're raising, these, these red herrings you're raising, they express foolishness. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps a wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of these seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. And so Paul basically, he moves past all of their little things that they're throwing out, He says, just look at the logic of it. Just look at at the reality of it that we would expect what? This this new body to be different. It's going to be different. It has to be. Why? Because it's of a different substance in some ways. And he he draws these analogies to to help them kind of understand the difference. First analogy he draws is of the seed and the plant. Okay? And he says that our physical body, our body right now is like the seed. And our body to come, what we expect in resurrection, is the plant. Okay, the seed, what? It's buried, it dies, a plant arises that is different, but what? Connected. Okay. And so this is the illustration that he's drawing here. That you you see the seed and the plant, they look completely different. Completely different. But what? They're in actuality very much connected. You can't have the plant if you don't first have the seed. Okay. So that's what Paul's illustration here, that, that's what he's getting at. And then he, he draws the, the illustration of, of the, the spheres of life. And he talks about animals versus celestial bodies, heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, stars. He says how they're different. Now, it, it's a little bit confusing here because. What he says in Greek doesn't come across quite as clearly in English as we would hope. But he says in verse 39, not all flesh is the same flesh. Okay? So you have the animals, you have the. Okay? An animal is not a human. But what? They're all still flesh. Okay? So he says here, not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another. For animals. Now, the word he uses for another there is alos, which means another of the same kind. Okay, that's important because there's two words for another in Greek. He uses them both here. One is another of the same kind, the other is another of a different kind. Okay, and so when he lists all these animals here, you know, another of. uh, another for animals, another for birds another for fish he's saying it's another it's not the same but it's of the same kind which what he's saying there is simply this all of creation is of the same kind it's all flesh okay it's all earthly then he goes in verse forty and he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is another, or different from that of the earthly bodies. There he uses the word hetero, which means different. Okay? And so he's, he's drawing this illustration. He says there's the natural world, there's the celestial world. When you start talking about resurrection, you have, you have life in this world, and you have life in that world. Okay? All right? And so, his, his, his point here is that the eternal body is different than this body, but it's connected. It's connected. Okay? There is a relationship between the two. And he goes on in verses 42 through 50, really, uh, 42 through 44 is where we focus so far, to describe what that eternal body looks like. He says, number one, it's imperishable. Okay? One of the differences between the eternal body and the present body is that it's imperishable. It's not going to waste away. It's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to be subject to the deterioration that our body is. He says, number two, it possesses glory. Okay? In other words, it, unlike the the natural body that, that is twisted or broken or bent or clay in nature as an image he uses elsewhere, the, the, this, the body to come, the eternal body it's glorious okay it's glorious it, it's, it's perfection it expresses power that's the third thing he says about it okay it, it contains some sort of power and then he concludes by saying it is a spiritual body now that's an oxymoron, okay just like civil war okay that's, those are two words they don't go together. We, there's nothing civil about a war. Well, there's nothing spiritual about the idea of a body. And yet Paul brings them together here. And this is where a lot of the confusion comes in because a lot of people start thinking along the terms of spiritual body, meaning it's a body that is made of the substance of spirit. That's not the idea. The the image here is not non-physical. The image here is not of, of an iron ship versus a wooden ship. Okay. one's made of iron, one's made of wood. The image here is of steam versus nuclear power. Okay, a body powered by what is natural versus a body that's powered by versus what is spiritual. That's the distinction. How do we know that? Because as I said earlier in this chapter, Paul has said that Jesus' body, Jesus' resurrection, is a model of what our resurrection will be like. Okay, you want to know what. The resurrected body will be like? Look at Jesus' body after the resurrection. Look at what his body was like. And what do we know about it? Number one, it was tangible. You could touch it. Jesus invited the disciples many times. Touch it. Put your fingers in the scars. See that I am the guy who died on the cross, okay? He said it was, it, we know it was recognizable, they, although they struggle at first, recognize him. Why? Because they didn't expect him to be there. It wasn't that he looked different. It was that they weren't expecting to see him. I've shared the story before. I think of um, going home from college one one year. Um, it was a Sunday that I was traveling, and I happened to be in the town where my brother was pastor. Just as his evening service was about to start, so I thought I'll just stop in and I'll enjoy some worship with him, and say hey to my brother, and then I'll finish the rest of the trip to my parents, so forth. So I went in. I sat down. My brother gets up. He's the pastor. He's preaching. He he he's, he's looks at me several times, looking right in the eye several times. But about 20 minutes in, he says, that's my brother. He just stops in his message and says, that's my brother. He had looked at me several times during his message, but it, it didn't click to him. That I was me. Until that moment, why? Because he wasn't expecting to see me there. I wasn't supposed to be there, and so he didn't recognize me. And that's what—that's what's going on with Jesus after the resurrection. With the apostles, they see him. Mary sees him, and these others see him, but they weren't expecting him. And so Mary refers to him as a gardener, thinking he was a gardener. And, and the apostles who traveled with him to the road to to Emmaus, they didn't even acknowledge him until he broke the bread in front of them, and like, oh, dude, it's him. Okay, but his body was recognizable. Okay, and that's important. He could eat, but he didn't have to. Okay, the the, the gospels tell us that he ate with the disciples, but he also says, I I don't, I don't need that. Okay, so he could enjoy that part of it, but he didn't have to. But he also what? He appeared in locked rooms. Okay, rooms without entrances. Suddenly he was there. That's a little bit different than what we had before. Okay. But most importantly, the tomb was empty. And this is so very important for the doctrine of resurrection. It wasn't that he became the spirit entity over here kind of functioning and operating. The body that died walked out of that tomb. The body that died walked out. That is the resurrection. That is the doctrine of resurrection. The body that was dead was no longer dead. Okay, and that's our belief. That's what Christianity teaches. That's what Paul is getting at here in Corinthians. And so, this belief that some people have that suddenly we'll just be up there and 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 just kind of whatever floating around or what. We'll talk more about that next week. And the week to come, what it's going to be like. But this belief that it's somehow this escape from the body, that's not a biblical doctrine of what happens ultimately for the believer. Resurrection is the center of it. Okay. Now what's more, Paul makes it quite clear here in verses 51 through 57, earlier in verses 22 through 23, but Peter as well in 1 Peter 1, 3 through, through 5, that these bodies, these resurrected bodies, do So the resurrection does not happen until Christ return. And let's face it, we 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 know that. You go to a funeral, there is a body there. Okay? The person obviously has not been resurrected. Okay. Yesterday was 13 year anniversary from the passing of my father. Okay, and it still, still is with me and And I remember the memorial service. I remember the funeral service um, you know leading that with my brother and realizing, okay, that is my dad still. that is that body is still his and that body will be resurrected one day. That is the clear teaching of scripture. clear over and over again. there's never an exception. So that leads us to what question? what happens in between now and then? Right? I mean, that's that's a natural question. If the Bible clearly teaches that our hope is our bodies being resurrected from the dead when Christ returns, what happens in between our death now and our resurrection then? What happens? And for this, we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because here, Paul is addressing that question. He's dealing with that issue because people are starting to doubt. They're starting to fear. Okay, you say the resurrection happened. I, I, I believe you that it's happening, but I see people die, and I see people being put in the grave, and those people are still in the grave. If I go dig up their grave, they're still there. They haven't resurrected. So what's going on? What happens? And he gets at this to some degree here in verse in chapter 5. It says, For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, that is our present body, desiring to be put on our heavenly dwelling. We desire the resurrection, Paul is talking about here. Since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. In other words, I the idea Paul is saying here, says. I don't want, I don't even want to consider the possibility that our soul, our spirit, dwells without a body. That's what he's talking about when he talks about being found naked. He says that, that's, that's, that's not a good idea. Okay, he doesn't like that thought. He goes on. Um, indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed. We don't want to be like that, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us a spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home to the Lord. That's the, the passage you always hear at funerals. Okay, To be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's, that's what we hear. Okay? Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether for good or for evil. So Paul here, he doesn't, he doesn't explicitly tell us, because he says what about the being away from the body? He says we are confident that we would prefer to be away from the body with the Lord, but he doesn't specifically say we are. Paul himself seems to be struggling somewhat with what happens in the intervening time. Okay. The Bible itself doesn't give us a clear unequivocal answer to what happens in the time between death and the resurrection. It just doesn't. I wish it did. Okay. We're going to look at some possibilities here based upon some scriptures, but it doesn't give us a clear unequivocal answer. Now, part of our belief system concerning what happens at death, as I said when I was opening, goes more to popular belief than it does to the issue of what the Bible actually teaches. And we can blame, or we can, (laughs) however we want to put it, we can blame the Middle Ages for that. Because in the Middle Ages in Christianity, certain belief systems began to develop that are not in the Bible, but they were taught, nonetheless, in a lot of the Christian church. And one of the more important ones that really had an influence on this whole idea was the idea of purgatory. Okay, That there was this place that people would go okay, who were not quite saints, but were also not guilty of the mortal sins. Okay, So the church in the Middle Ages largely taught that there was heaven, there was purgatory, and there was hell, okay? Now, this is not biblical. This is what was taught. I want to be very clear about that, okay? But this is important because it shaped a lot of thought. Who went to heaven, according to the people of the Middle Ages? The saints did. The people who rose to that level of goodness, that level of godliness, that level of whatever, okay? So when you hear in the Middle Ages, I'm talking about the saints of da-da-da-da-da, or saint this, or saint that. They're talking about the people who were good enough, who were meritorious enough to achieve heaven. All the rest of us who weren't bad enough or guilty enough to go to hell, we were consigned to purgatory, a place in which they believed we would burn off those faults until we achieved heaven eventually. Okay. Now, why is that important? Because if that's taught, suddenly Christian doctrine and Christian teaching and Christian preaching became not about the resurrection, but about, quote, getting to heaven. It changed the mindset of everybody. Instead of the sermons, which you see in the New Testament over and over again, talking about our blessed hope was into the resurrection when Christ returns, the sermons all centered, all focused upon the idea of getting to heaven. Be a saint. Be that kind of person. And so when the Protestant Reformation happened and, and those doctors and those teachers came in, they said, purgatory is not in the Bible. Okay, It's just not there. And they made that corrective. But the discussion still was centered on getting to heaven. Okay, How do we get to heaven? That became the focus of Christian teaching. Christian teaching is not... In the Bible, is not focused upon getting to heaven. The Bible is focused upon the resurrection, the new life that comes when Christ returns. That is the focus, okay? And that's important to keep in mind because that 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 couches our whole discussion. Resurrection has become an afterthought, when in the Bible it's a central thought. So back to the question: What happens according to the Bible, or according to different beliefs? What happens between when we die and that resurrection? There's three basic thoughts in Christianity. All of them are drawing on Scripture. All of them are trying to do the best they can with the information that's available. Um, but and they all have problems too, from scriptural perspective. The first view is what's called soul sleep or soul death. What this view simply says is that when you die, your soul, your spirit, it goes to sleep. Or it dies with your physical body. Everything dies. And that's just your status until Christ returns when God, when He resurrects the soul, the spirit, the body all at once. Okay? Now that belief comes out of certain passages such as 1 Corinthians 7.39, 11.30. 156, 15, 18, 1520, 1551, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15 that, that use sleep as a metaphor for death. Okay. Where those passages, Paul talks about death as if it's asleep. And so some are drawing drawing from those passages, that's the conclusion they draw. And the, the, the power of this one, the value of this one is that it acknowledges. The biblical idea of the unity between the body and the spirit. It acknowledges that. It sees that. They're connected. Okay? The second view, kind of a middle road view. This one's more philosophical, but it's trying to draw on both those passages and passages like Jesus on the cross when he turns to the thief and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay? And this is a view that, that says it's a matter of perception where you're at. Okay? This view says that when you die, the person who dies, for them, they step into eternity. Or another way of putting that is timelessness. Okay? So for them, dot death, boom, you're at the resurrection. You're not asleep. You're not dead. You're just, from where you are, you're moved into a new realm, a new situation, a new environment. So that the moment you die, you are resurrected from your standpoint. But the viewpoint of everybody else here is that your body's still in the grave. Okay, so it's a matter of question. I'm not going to go into all of this. I don't think it's correct for one reason, but for one thing, but I'm not going to go into all of this. But it's basically trying to, to do both those things, trying to say, yes, today you're with me in paradise. From your standpoint, the person who dies instantaneously, you're resurrected, you're at that endpoint because you've stepped into timelessness. You're in a different realm, a different sphere. But from the standpoint of everybody else who's watching, who hasn't entered that sphere, you're still here. Okay, Two different tracks, what you might call that view. The third view, the most common view among Christians, some might even call it the Orthodox view, though I wouldn't go that far, is that you go to a place called paradise or heaven. Okay, That... The intermediate period during that time, the people that are there are in paradise or heaven. Using Jesus' words, today you're with me in paradise. Using Paul's words, you're going to heaven. So how are you there? Well, within that view, there's two views. I hope I'm not getting too confusing here. But within that view, there's two views. One, you're given a temporary body. In other words, when you die, your soul, your spirit, so forth, is given a temporary body to dwell with God. Okay. And that when the resurrection happens, that body is shed off and you're given a new one. Or you're given the body you previously had. Okay. There's that view. The other view is no, you're you are without a body. Your, your spirit, your soul is simply in the presence of God. okay? You're just there without a body. okay this is this is the traditional view and that when the resurrection happens, the soul, the spirit will reconnect, reunite with the body that was here that Christ has in from the grave. Okay? So you can see why there's so much confusion so much question about this, okay? Because all three of those views are taking passages and they're saying, this is what this passage is trying to tell me. The whole idea of being without a body is, is drawing from Paul's statements over and over here again here about being naked or being unclothed. And what he's essentially saying is is, that's not my preference, but it's better than here. Okay? What's important for us to recognize as believers is that there is, a connection, there's a relationship between the body and the soul. Okay. From a biblical standpoint, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. You do not have a body, you are a body. That is how it's described from Genesis through Revelation. You have those, or you don't have those, you are those. What's more, the Bible nowhere, nowhere talks about the immortality of the soul. It just doesn't. The Bible talks about the only thing that is immortal is God himself. 1 Timothy 6.16 God alone has immortality. Period. End of discussion. This is why, this is why In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, what's present there? The tree of life. What does the tree of life provide? What does Genesis itself say the tree of life provides? They eat it and they can live forever, right? Right? And so when man sins, God expels him from the garden. Why? Lest they eat of the tree and live forever in that status. So where did... Prior to the fall, where did Adam and Eve get their ability to live forever? It wasn't in who they were. It was from the tree itself. Because remember, they could eat from the tree of life all they wanted before the fall. Okay, So it provided that. The immortality Adam and Eve had wasn't because they were Adam and Eve. It was because God provided it through the tree of life. How do I know that? Jump forward to Revelation, the end. Christ comes back. He establishes the new world. Establishes the new heaven the new earth. We'll look at that more in the weeks to come. What's at the center of that new heaven new earth? That, that, that place. What's there? The tree of life. Why is there a tree of life if we are innately immortal? We're not. God provides that immortality. We're always dependent upon Him. If we were immortal in and of ourselves... We would be God. But even in that status, we are dependent upon Him for that continued life, for that continued existence. So to understand that is to begin to see the reality of what our hope is. It's this resurrection. What can we say about the intermediate period? What can we say about that time in between death and resurrection? Again, we can't say everything, but here are the things, the three things that the Bible tells us clearly. Number one, it's a temporary status. The time between our death and our resurrection is a temporary status. Referred to as paradise, but even more important, John 14.1. John 14.1, Jesus is talking there, and he says, In my Father's house are what? Many mansions. Okay. Now, this is one of those things that's really been twisted. Okay. When King James, the translators of King James translated that word mansion, they did not have in mind what we have in mind when we say the word mansion. When we have when we say the word mansion, what do we have in mind?
1: Big house,
0: lots and lots of rooms. You know, that's what we have in mind. That's not what the word meant in 1611. Okay, The word mansion in 1611, this is straight out of the Oxford English Dictionary, a place where one stops for a time to dwell, a temporary place to live. Okay, That's why he makes the, what sounds to us as an odd statement. In my father's house are many mansions how can a house possess many of these big houses? That doesn't make any sense because that's not what he's saying. He's saying in my father's house are many, our modern word, the closest modern equivalent we have is apartment. That's the closest word we have. In my father's house are many apartments. It's a temporary place to live. Okay? I mean, just think of that in terms of our own culture. Generally, you don't live in an apartment as your permanent place. You do what? You do it until you can get to a house, right? Generally speaking. Some people like apartments, and that's fine. But generally speaking, in our culture, you live in an apartment until you can get into a house. It's the same idea. When Jesus says, in my Father's house are many apartments, rooms, mansions, if you're living in 1600 King James world, okay? He's saying... There's separate, there's these these places for temporary dwelling, okay? And that's where you'll stay. And so, it's a temporary place. Jesus himself said so. Until what? The resurrection. When the resurrection happens, our bodies are resurrected, we have the new heaven, the new earth, and that's where we live. Okay, Number two. It's a fixed state. That is, you can't move, you can't change your standing during this intermediate period. Okay. In other words, when Paul here talks about um, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he's done in his body and so forth, he's saying what? You, when you die, you experience judgment. And that judgment determines your eternal state. And you can't move between those states. You can't move in those environments. Hebrews 9.27 says as well, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this a judgment. Okay? So what does that mean? That means that if you die a believer, you're a believer your, your place is secured in the resurrection in the new heaven, new earth. If you die an unbeliever, somebody who's not connected to Christ, then that's then your eternal status will be hell. That's what scripture teaches. It's not something I enjoy, it's not something I even like talking about, but it's what scripture teaches. Okay. So he has fixed state. And then third, I believe that the Bible teaches that this intermediate state is a conscious state. Whether we're within a body or without. I believe the Bible teaches we know where we're at and that we are interacting with, with God. Why do I believe that? There are several passages, 2 Corinthians 5, 3-4, Philippians one but especially Revelation 6, 9-11. In Revelation 6, John has this, this view of heaven. This is not the eternal kingdom, this is heaven. And he says, I see the souls of the saints, those who have died gone to heaven, pleading with God underneath. They know what's going on. And so I don't want to draw too much of it because it's apocalyptic literature, but the implication seems to clearly be that we do have some conscious state there. All of that comes together to say this. The ultimate hope of the Christian is not escape from this body to live in heaven. The ultimate hope of the Christian is resurrection of the body and an eternal dwelling with a recreated world from God. That is what Scripture teaches. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Him. That's our hope. That's the blessed hope. The blessed hope is not heaven. The blessed hope is resurrection in which we enjoy a transformed existence that is like Jesus's. We don't become exactly like Jesus. Jesus is God, and we'll never be gods. We're not little gods waiting to be awakened. But we will enjoy several of the realities that he enjoyed. We'll enjoy several of the the aspects that will take place. So what difference does this make right now? okay? It, it, it's, you know, you talk about these things, and you can get all philosophical and all these other things, but at the end of the day, the big question is, so what? What difference does this make in what we believe and how we do? I think there's several things, and I'll do these quickly, wrap up. Number one, how do we do evangelism? How do we do evangelism? so much of the christian church has been i want to save your soul i want to save your soul we need to see souls saved and that's our philosophy that's our language why because we have bought into this idea that your soul goes to heaven and your body doesn't or your body doesn't there's no nothing for your body it's just left behind the bible teaches resurrection if resurrection is what is our ultimate goal. If it really is our blessed hope, then what? Then our evangelism needs to be interested in the whole body too. We're not just saving souls. We're transforming people. We're meeting their physical, their spiritual, their emotional needs. Not just saying, oh, you bought your ticket into heaven. We're saying, you have been bought by a price. All of you is what God wants. You can't compartmentalize your life. You can't compartmentalize how you view God and how you relate to God. It's all His. That's what evangelism is. That's what making disciples is. Number two, the here and now, your body matters. Okay, Your body was made to praise God. It was meant to, to express His power and His presence. In the resurrection will experience that in its fullness. But there is continuity between who we are then and who we are now. You want to begin to experience what the resurrection, what the hope, what the joy is. Give all that you are, mind, body, and spirit to God in how you live your life and how you treat yourself and how you treat others. Okay. Number three, the doctrine of the resurrection prioritizing it affirms the power and purpose of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was not just an escape from death. It was a victory over it. Okay, And this is where number four comes in. Our doctrine, our idea of death, is not just that it's a transferring of locations. Well, I went from here, from my earthly home to my heavenly home. Death in Scripture is not ever the goal. You hear some people talk about, well, why don't I just kill myself so I can just go straight to heaven? You hear people with that kind of twisted logic. And what Jesus is proclaiming, what the resurrection is proclaiming, is that death is not the goal, overcoming death is. Death is the great enemy. How many times in scripture is death described that way? It is the enemy, it's the last enemy, Paul refers to it as. Death is bad. You hear me? It's bad. Jesus conquered death. He whipped it, beat it soundly. Okay? And our hope, our future, our understanding is that we will also defeat death we don't want to accept death we don't want to see death as some great thing death is the enemy we're overcoming it and if we can overcome that great enemy then how can we not overcome the other enemies we face in this life prejudice and pride and anger and selfishness and all these other things that are a part of our existence they have been conquered too. If Jesus beat the big guy that is death, he's beat all these other things too. And we can begin to live in that victory now. We can begin to experience that power now. We don't have to be slaves to sin. Will we fail? Yes, we're going to fail. I'm not advocating a perfectionism here. But the only reason we fail is because we're not living by the power of the Spirit. We struggle. The old man and the new man, as Paul describes it, they struggle. And sometimes we give in to that old man. But we have been called to be more than overcomers. Why? Because as we read earlier, nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Resurrection, the idea of resurrection, should shape all that we believe. We're not just trying to get to heaven. We're living a life that is empowered to overcome even the greatest of enemies, which is death itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come. And God, we confess there's a lot that we don't understand. But we are thankful that you have given us enough to understand and enough to see and to conceive that we can live lives of victory, we can live lives of power, we can live lives of authority. God, we pray that you would help us to to walk in that, to see that, to understand that, to truly experience the freedom you've granted us in Christ, to be the people you've made us to be. God, help us to, to see the connections between the things we believe and the things we do. And to live lives that are consistent in both of those realms. We thank you, God. We praise you in Christ's name.